0: Welcome to the Real Truth Matters Podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM Podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director Michael Durham. A great mistake
1: that is working eternal destruction is the misunderstanding of true biblical faith. I suppose there be no worse mistake being made today in Christian churches. It's the reason many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, but not enter the kingdom. I can think of nothing more frightening to think that you've believed upon the Lord Jesus, but your faith is inferior, and I would have none of you meet such a prospect. And so this episode is necessary. And it's here also where Satan has craftily planted the evil seeds of confusion and its fruit is that there's much disagreement as to what it means to have faith in Christ. Some say faith in Christ is no more than believing what the Bible says about Christ. Well, certainly any God-fearing person would not argue this, but is this an adequate definition of faith? In many different places in the world, there are many people who say they believe what the Bible says about Christ, and yet they remain in their sins. That's why using the words faith and belief in our times needs to be explained. In other words, faith for so many is an intellectual assent of certain truth claims. The Bible provides us insight into the word believe that would contradict this wrong definition. To understand what faith is and its ingredients, it's important to go to the Scriptures. And I want to direct your attention to a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote. We looked at it in our last episode. It's Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and following. Although Paul doesn't set out to give us a definition of faith, we see the components or ingredients of faith. The first ingredient is knowledge. In verse 14, Paul asks a series of questions. One of those questions are, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? You must first learn a proposition that claims to be true. You cannot believe something to be true if you know nothing about it. Therefore, faith requires knowledge. The second building block of faith is acceptance of the fact. First is knowledge of the fact, and second, acceptance. You must accept the truth claim or proposition to be true if faith is to exist. Faith does require intellectual assent, and that's what I'm discussing now. Of course, in our last episode, I made it clear that faith is not mental agreement with supposed facts. However, faith must have as an ingredient this agreement— Let me give you a true story as an example. A few years ago, the police in Phoenix, Arizona, found a three-year-old boy walking down the street. They tried to get the boy to tell him his name. And so the policeman kindly asked, What's your name, sonny? Baloney, declared the youngster. No, no, please, the officer pleaded. Tell me your real name. Baloney was again the reply. They tried bribes, but nothing worked. The mystery lad ate a candy bar and then another one, but he refused to change his story. And while the policemen were trying to figure out what to do with the three-year-old, a crying, anxious mother called to report her son was missing. She described the boy perfectly. The police were confident that their recent find was indeed the woman's son. Confident they could now discover his name, the policeman asked the mom, "'What is your son's name, madam?' "'Baloney,' replied the woman." Well, that humorous but true story proves our point. The police had knowledge, but they didn't have mental assent. They didn't agree with what was presented to them as the truth. They didn't accept that knowledge. Believing requires acceptance. You must accept something or someone to be true if you're to exercise faith in them or it. Should you accept the knowledge as the truth, you are said to believe it. And for so many professing Christians, this is as far as their faith goes. They know that Jesus is God, and they accept that as the truth. Thus, when you ask someone, do you believe in Jesus? And they say, oh, yes, I believe. But having only these two ingredients of faith, knowledge and acceptance— they come short of the faith that justifies. For them, faith is nothing more than hearing and learning about Jesus and accepting his reality as a fact. Surely, this is no more than what a man may believe about historical figures. He can learn that George Washington was the general of the Continental Army that fought for our independence. He comes to understand that Washington was the first president of the United States. He accepts these facts and even feels a degree of pride in this man known as the father of our country. Tell such a man that there was no such person as George Washington and watch him react. Although he's never met George Washington, he's firmly entrenched in belief and confidence that Washington existed. So here's my question. Tell me, What is the difference between this kind of mental comprehension of George Washington and faith in Jesus Christ? The faith that God accepts and by which he justifies the sinner is much different than this. It certainly incorporates knowledge and acceptance, but it goes beyond to include other ingredients. And that leads us to our third component— of faith To have the faith that God requires, you need to move to this third ingredient of faith, which is commitment. The Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, again in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, says, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... One believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now notice with me the words in verse 9, believe in your heart, and the words in verse 10, with the heart one believes. By stating it like this, the Lord moves faith beyond just the intellect, beyond just knowing and accepting he moves the faith of the mind into the realm of the heart, which means faith involves a deeper commitment than just intellectual agreement. When we talk of the heart, we're talking about the source from which life is lived. We're dealing with the vital core of a man. We're speaking of commitment, of loyalty, of love, of passion. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we read, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The word committed can be interpreted as to entrust. And so the words committed or entrusted seem to better convey in our 21st century what the first century Christian meant when he used the word believe. For the most part, when we say the word believe, we really mean we accept something to be true. We're thinking of the first two components of faith, knowledge of the fact and acceptance of the fact we are acknowledging its reality. But the first century Christian meant much more. He meant that he entrusted himself to that which he believed. This is the meaning of the words faith and believe in the New Testament. It means to invest something in the thing or the person you are believing in, hence the word commitment. We might illustrate this many ways. For a start, if you have ever walked a rope bridge over a deep gorge, you had to exercise commitment. In fact, You may have done so without being mentally sure that the bridge would support you and not collapse under your feet, sending you to your death. But despite your doubts, you committed or invested your life to the bridge. You entrusted yourself to it. Or a drowning man cannot be saved by mere knowledge and acceptance— He can know that the life buoy that's been tossed to him from his would-be rescuer can save his life. He can accept the fact with all his mind. He can be convinced without any doubts whatsoever. But this believing will not save him. No. He must commit himself to the life preserver and the man who tossed it to him. He must fasten it around him and give himself to it. Otherwise, he will drown. If my wife Karen and I want to get away for a few days, we'll have to find someone to care for our special needs daughter, Victoria. Victoria has Down syndrome and autism. At the time of her birth, she wasn't breathing and was deprived of oxygen, which has contributed to her being very low-functioning. Karen and I must give constant care and supervision to help Victoria do some of the very simplest things of life that we often take for granted. And so, as we plan our trip, we try to find someone whom we believe can best care for Victoria. We begin to exchange names, and when a name is mentioned that we both are sure about, we may say something like this, Ah, oh, I believe that couple can care for Victoria. They'll do a good job. Now, pay close attention to the words. We believe that they can care for Victoria. Are we believing that they could care for our daughter? Why, well, of course we are. but. The question is, am I trusting them to do so? And the answer is, no, I am not. I believe with all my mind that someone might be capable, but not until I surrender my Victoria into their care do I trust them with Victoria. I must commit her into their care, turn around, and walk away. The faith that God responds to is a faith that commits you to Him— And I mean not just your sins, not just your eternal destiny at the moment of death. No, I mean your entire life between now and eternity. Have you committed not just your heart, but also your life to Christ? Have you yielded your rights and privileges into His hands? Are you investing your days, however many you have, into His kingdom, into His way of life? This is a necessary component to godly faith. You know God exists. You believe that Christ came into the world born of a virgin. You're very orthodox in your doctrine, believing that the death of Christ is the only way to eternal life. You have no doubts about it or any fact of Scripture. But if you stop there, my dear friend, all of your knowledge, all of your acceptance of these facts will not save you. It'll simply prove to be a rope of smoke. It'll not keep you from falling into hell, no matter how hard you may try to grip it. This is not the faith that is acceptable to God. You must entrust yourself to God. You must put your full weight on Christ, who is our bridge to God. Give yourself to Him. Surrender into His loving care. Place yourself into His death and resurrection. Oh, rest. And don't struggle anymore to believe, just lie down into His loving arms and there remain in Him. So many who come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and realize their sin and separation from God make this terrible mistake of equating faith to a feeling. Instead of trusting the Lord because He is trustworthy, they struggle to believe because they're waiting for Some feeling to hit them. They think faith is some flutter of the heart or some warm, tingling feeling. It seems that they are waiting for some experience that is evidence that they believe and that God is saving them. But once again, this is not faith in the trustworthiness of Christ, nor is it faith in the promises of his word the greek word used in the bible for faith literally can be translated quote to surrender or give oneself to another trust therefore means a personal commitment to the object trusted you have to entrust something to the person trusted our faith cannot be in feelings experiences or anything other than the one thing and one thing alone The words of the text are not to be tampered with. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, in him you also trusted. Romans chapter 10 verse 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. My friend, your faith is to be in Christ himself. Mental agreement with the truth is not faith until you commit yourself to the truth. And that always produces action. Faith moves from the realm of the intellect into the realm of reality, into conduct, into behavior. That's what James meant when he said in James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? James is making the point that I'm making. There is a kind of faith that is merely information learned and believed to be true, but it goes no further than that. James is arguing that genuine faith produces actions. That is what he means by the word works. He doesn't mean a person works their way into heaven. Instead, biblical faith will always translate into obedience to God. Faith produces obedience. So when the word works gets mentioned, well, we automatically assume it means trying to work your way into heaven. No, there's another kind of works that is the fruit of faith. We perform what is called good works, not because we're trying to become citizens of heaven, but because we're already citizens in God's kingdom. James continues his argument in the 18th verse of the second chapter of his epistle bearing his name. And there he warns against a faith that's compromised of only the first two ingredients of knowledge and mental assent. He says, But someone will say, If you have faith and I have works, Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith By my works. James now makes the comparison between these two kinds of faith, biblical faith and an unbiblical kind of faith. How can you show faith without works? The man who says, I believe in God, how does he prove or demonstrate that he has faith in God? And the only way to do so is by doing what God says. If I truly trust my doctor, then whatever he prescribes, I will do. If I don't, then I've not really entrusted myself to him. James says, I will prove to you that I have faith by my obedience to God's commands. I really believe the Lord meant what he said and will act on his word. That's his whole argument. But then he comes and brings the hammer. The final argument that demolishes a faith that is mental agreement only is in James 2.19. James says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. There is no dispute that the demons are very much in agreement with the facts of God's reality and what Christ has done. Even while Jesus was ministering on earth, demons would burst forth confessing his true identity. Yet despite their knowledge of the truth and their acceptance of the truth, they do not have a faith that moves them to commit themselves to the truth and live it out. But faith, real, saving, genuine faith, obeys. I believe that faith or trust has inherently the quality of obedience. That's a major takeaway from the brazen serpent in the wilderness. As an act of judgment, God sent into the camp of Israel poisonous serpents, large numbers, died as a result of being snake bit. Moses interceded for the people, and the Lord instructed Moses to put a brass serpent on a pole and tell anyone bitten by a snake to look at the brass serpent, and they would be immediately healed. To believe Moses was telling the truth was not enough. One had to obey Moses and look at the pole with the brass snake. Therefore, faith must lead to action. That's all this component of commitment or entrusting means. You so commit to the word of God that you live it. Well, the fourth and final ingredient or component of faith is this. Christ is the sole object of faith. The New Testament repeatedly specifies that faith is in the person of Christ. Now, please listen. It's not just what he's done, but it's in the person, because it's the person that makes what he has done impactful, influential, and eternal. For example, here's a few verses, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 6:40 and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life acts 10:43 to him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins and then Romans chapter 3 verse 26 to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in in Jesus. Faith from God that justifies is a faith that looks absolutely to and upon the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the flower looks to the sun alone for light, we look unto him as we would look unto air in order to breathe. It's not just believing in what he has done, but believing in him, all that he is. All that he has said, all that he has promised, just believing in his death is actually not enough. Because you can believe that something he has done can benefit you, but if you don't believe in him in all respects, then you find him incomplete. Many of you will struggle with this last few statements. It's because you have this artificial kind of definition of faith that simply says, if I believe the facts, that's enough. Well, the fact should lead you to the person, and that should be the object of your faith. Faith has only one object, and it's the person of Christ. There are too many things today that look like faith but aren't. Many think these things are faith, that they're trusting in the Lord, but they're trusting in everything but the Lord. For instance, should I ask someone, do you trust in Jesus? And how do you know that you're trusting in him? And their reply is, oh, yes, I trust in the Lord. And I know I trust in him because I prayed to receive him into my heart. I would answer, oh, no, that's not trusting in Jesus. That's trusting in you. You're trusting in the fact that you prayed and fulfilled some requirement of prayer to be saved. That's nothing more than self-righteousness, friend. That's trusting in you and not Christ. But they insist that they do trust in him. They say to me, but my prayer was in response to his promise that if I call upon him, then I would be saved, to which I could ask another question. If you just trusted him with your life and you did not pray some prayer, would you believe you're saved? And let's suppose they reply, well, no, you must pray and ask him to come into your heart if you're to be saved. My friend, if that's your view of faith in Christ, then I can only tell you You probably have not yet trusted Christ. You're trusting that you perform some requirement of prayer, and thus your faith is in you as much as was the Pharisee's faith in his own ability to keep the law of God. We must trust Christ and him alone, not any religious work that we may perform. Well, someone else answers my question, and they say, oh, I am a Christian. I know it not because I'm trusting in some prayer, but because I put my faith in Him. And so I say to you, well, very good. Let me ask you this. How do you know your faith is genuine? And they answer, well, because I felt in my soul the terrible agony of my sin. And I cried out to the Lord and I felt His love and peace flood my soul. To this person I say, it's good that you felt your sins and you experienced His love. But these are not what the Bible tells you to put your faith in. These are wonderful outpourings of God's grace, but you cannot put your faith in these. For the day will come when you will not feel deeply about anything at all. The test will come and your faith will be tried. You will feel lonely and the cheer of His presence will be absent. What then, my friend, will you trust in? I'm not saying this last person is not a Christian. They very well may be. They began with Christ as the object of their faith. They looked to him as the one who could give them love and peace, but they've allowed their faith to be distracted. And now the focus is on the experience and feeling of love and faith. Listen carefully. Faith must rest in christ because he is the only trustworthy object he's the only trustworthy person in the entire universe and faith gains strength as it contemplates nothing else but the greatness of the lord jesus faith excels as it drinks in the character of christ It discerns and notes his steadfastness. It revels in his immutability, meaning his unchangeableness. It sees him the same yesterday, today, and forever. It looks at the testimony of God concerning his anointed one. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it rejoices for faith to work. The object of faith must work. And if the object of faith is biblical, which is Christ, then faith will be biblical. Too many have their faith as the object of faith. To the degree that they can feel faith, their faith seems strong. But, but this is so wrong. Faith cannot look in on itself. Faith never saves or sanctifies Faith does not have the power to change, but God has the power to change what He deems wise to change. He is the Omnipotent One who delivers, answers, and intervenes. Why, my dear friend, look elsewhere. Now, this may seem so simple to you that you lose the scope of its significance. A disturbed and doubting man says he knows God can help, but instead of lifting his head and looking up to the Lord, He turns his gaze down and inward. He troubles his heart as he demands from it a certain degree of faith rather than looking to the author and the finisher of his faith. If he would have his faith to thrive, then he must remove the clouds of self-centeredness and let the sun of God's power and might shine upon his wilted and weak faith. Faith must have God as its only object and focus. In our next episode, we will look at the evidences of faith. What are the signs that you have faith and that that faith is real? This episode will help you, especially if you're of the sort that struggles over whether you have faith or not. Well, before we leave you today, I want to once again welcome all of our new listeners. The number of weekly listeners is increasing, and we are so delighted and grateful for you and thank you for making RTM one of the podcasts you listen to regularly. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I want to make available to you my book, which was published last year, The Fight of Faith, How a Christian Can Experience Assurance of Salvation. If you'd like a copy, we'll offer the book to you for a reduced price while we're discussing the subject of faith on the podcast. The regular price is twelve ninety nine, but while we're exploring faith for the next few weeks— you can go to the website realtruthmatters.com and secure your copy for $9.99. We're not trying to make a profit here. All of our proceeds goes back into our publishing department for the future production of new books. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in. And may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.